really important part is staying involved in your loved one's life. If it is a loved one that's in an inpatient facility, making sure that you're taking advantage of those visits. Nothing replaces the love and connection you have with friends and family. This is the Brother Be Well podcast. We're focused on mental health needs for boys and men of color, including trauma and healing. This podcast series is sponsored by Blue Shield of California's Blue Sky Initiative. Get ready for real talk. And to our parents and caregivers, listen up, y'all. Hi, I'm Michael P. Coleman, content director for Brother Be Well. Inpatient mental health care is an essential, often life-saving level of care that is still widely feared, misunderstood, and stigmatized, but it shouldn't be. Much like going to the hospital for short-term acute treatment of a medical crisis or condition, going to an inpatient mental health care facility is simply what you do to get the right level of care when you or a loved one is in crisis. Not everyone who needs or wants therapy will need inpatient treatment, but some will. It's there for exactly when you need it and only for as long as you need to be there with the goal of getting you stable enough to continue your treatment in an outpatient setting. Think of it as a brief stop to get you the help you or a loved one needs. Today, in one of a series of Brother Be Well conversations in our Parents and Caregiver series, sponsored by Blue Shield of California's Blue Sky Initiative, we're exploring inpatient mental health care with an expert on the topic. Please help me welcome Cherie Kreiner, registered nurse, former psychiatric nurse, and Vice President of the Capital City Black Nurses Association. Cherie, how are you? And welcome back to Brother Be Well. I am well. Thank you so much for having me. Really good to see you. Good to have you. Let's jump right on into this one, Cherie. What are some of the common conditions that are successfully treated, initially at least, via inpatient care? Right. So inpatient care is an opportunity for not only um, initial or acute treatment, but long-term care. So longer-term care, more intensive therapy over time. So it can be inpatient care after an acute situation where you're having psychosis or uh, you're in a position where you are at risk of harming yourself or others. And so you go and get that initial care and then longer-term care. Um, Or it can be as simple as uh, a voluntary um, inpatient stay where there's a program that offers more therapy that's intense and steadily and over time. So, you know, as we continue to talk today, we'll look at those individual pieces. Looking forward to having that conversation. You know, I've learned that that someone can have themselves admitted to an inpatient treatment facility, or you can be committed to one. And as I was thinking about this talk, Cherie, I was wondering, I think that lingo committed or being committed is a part of what contributes to the stigmatization of inpatient mental health care. Would you please walk us through the process of someone being committed to a mental health care facility? Right. So you're absolutely uh, right, Michael. Definitely, there's a stigma around the idea of being forced to do something or go somewhere. So there is a distinction. There are inpatient facilities where they're voluntary, where someone can actually go sign themselves in to do. And then there's those situations where it's um, outside of their control. And what we call that involuntary um, admission to inpatient stay. It's actually covered under the law. You may have heard people mention 5150, um, which is a statute that allows us as healthcare providers uh, to protect someone from harming themselves or others after they've been assessed to be a risk. And we can hold them for up to three days or until their condition changes um, for that three days. Um, After three days, if they are still showing the same symptoms, still presenting the same risk, 
then we are able to extend that hold up to 14 days, which is called a 5250. Um, in that situation, the patient also gets the opportunity to have their case heard at a court to make sure that the healthcare providers are making the right decision because you are being asked to do something beyond your will. It's more than an ask. We're saying you have to stay here because of this risk to yourself or others. So there are safety nets in place to make sure that when us healthcare providers are making that decision to involuntarily um, keep someone admitted, that we are following all the rules and that it's absolutely necessary. I get it. I understand it now. Really appreciate you walking us through that, Cherie. With regard to inpatient treatment services, I've also learned that there's a difference between traditional inpatient and residential treatment. Um, we have a whole video that's exploring residential treatment facilities, but for the sake of this chat, can you differentiate between those two, traditional inpatient and residential treatment? Right. So traditional inpatient care was the story I was just walking you through. There was some acute situation. Um, you're being held involuntarily uh, for treatment to stabilize or then set up and move you forward, right? So there's um, uh, psychiatrists, nurses, psych techs, a whole host of folks that facilitate the best treatment in that environment. Uh, and most people that are, are in a, a traditional inpatient setting um, are there under some sort of conservatorship or uh, law, as I mentioned, to keep them there to get the treatment that's needed. Uh, the residential programs are really awesome because you have these areas where someone can um, live and have access to their medications and supportive therapies um, that are kind of more independent, right? So it's like an independent living uh, residential inpatient space where you get all of your basic needs met, but also some additional support. Like you're okay to make some of your decisions on your own, but you may need someone to actually hand you your medication. In some um, residential places, they have uh, the opportunity for someone to give you your meds versus you keeping them yourself to keep you on track. They have counselors and therapists and other supportive services available to set you up for success. So some people will... Uh, I guess the term you may have heard before is transitional home. Um, some people still call it halfway house, things like that. But that's exactly what it is. It's an opportunity to set you up for success to get you back on a path of living the most independent life that you can. I really love these conversations, Cherie, because I have heard the term halfway house. I had no idea it was the same thing until you just said that. Uh, that's the colloquial term that, that we used to use when I was coming up. So thank you for helping me and others connect those dots. Really appreciate it. It's important, I think, to understand or for everyone to understand that it's it's your symptoms, not your diagnosis or your condition that determine whether or not you need hospitalization. Can you flesh that distinction out for us, Sheree? Absolutely, because you can have a mental illness and be totally stable, taking your medication, able to do all of your activities of daily living, and able to be in a situation where you're not harming yourself or others are at risk for that, you're not suicidal. So just having a mental illness alone is not grounds for um, admitting someone into an inpatient setting, as well as you look at uh, substance abuse or poly or multiple substance abuse. There's other situations that can lead you to a psychosis and have you um, have the need to be in an inpatient setting. So we definitely always look at the symptomology 
and the circumstance and assess risk and safety and ability to do all the daily things that you need to do. And based on that assessment that happens from a team approach, so um, physicians, nurses, techs, uh, that's how they decide what's truly needed when it comes to involuntary inpatient stays. Now, there are, as we mentioned, inpatient stays that are more voluntary that you could sign up for that just offers more frequent therapy and supportive services that you may need to deal with what you're dealing with. Um, some people may have heard them call it a day program. There are programs where people go and stay for the day and they go and live and sleep at their own residence, but they're getting that intense everyday therapy. So it really varies and there's so many options out there being offered. And I, and I would assume that those options are, are um, weighed based on um, the condition or the symptoms. Um, I would assume finances are a part of that. Some of those options are more expensive than others. So there's a variety of factors that go into which which path someone might might head down. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Um, depending on your circumstance, your insurance or lack thereof, there's uh, different levels of opportunity. There's something honestly for everyone. It may not be the same or maybe even your preference, but there are services down to free or, or no cost that are available in the community. Really appreciate you sharing that information, Cherie. I'm wondering, and I, I would imagine the range is pretty broad, but how long generally can one expect to be in a mental health care treatment facility? Well, you know, Michael, I've, I've seen people in and out in three days. I've seen people in and out in three months. I've seen some people that I, I knew uh, coming in a revolving door for six years. So um, really, it's case by case. Uh, the goal is for every person to have uh, a balance and stability for them to be able, like I keep mentioning your activities of daily life, the things that we all need to do, eat, sleep, um, have safety, uh, security, all those things. So the goal is to get everyone to their optimal level of performance that's within their wheelhouse. So it really does range anywhere from, like I said, three days to um, years of being, um, you know, if the condition really doesn't change and there's no um, ability to promote to more independent levels of care. I understand. I understand. appreciate that too. Um, Cherie, I'm wondering, we're talking about inpatient mental health care, and without asking too rudimentary a question, I'm just wondering, where does one go for that physically? Where do you go for for this type of care? Right. So as we've mentioned before, Michael, um, inpatient mental health facilities have been dwindling um, year over year. There's just less and less resources. Uh, part of that is because of the science. We know that we really should try to get people to live as independently as possible using resources. So there's been a shift in how people are treated. So that's one part. But then there's physically less actual places for people to go. Um, so starting with your, your primary care health provider, if you can get resources there, a hospital you go to through your insurance company, also the county that you live in, there are mental health and adult and a child psychiatric services through every county where they give you a list of what's offered and where you can go. And if not in your county, neighboring counties. So it's really just getting out there, uh, good old fashioned Google now, uh, looking up what's available near you in your area and using all those resources to get the best care that you can get. And I would assume a part of that Google uh, search might include a phone call or two. So I want to ask that question. 
is 911 the number that someone should call if, if they think they or someone that's in their care is in need of, of this level of service? Or, or who do you call when you, when you think you might need inpatient uh, mental health care? Right. So if you're in a situation where you or your loved one is at risk of harming themselves or others, uh, whether it be su attempting suicide, suicidal thoughts with a plan to follow through, um, physically being a threat or causing harm to others, not me themselves, and it cannot be maintained with the tools you have at home, and you cannot safely transport them to an emergency department, you can call 911. Um, if you are in a city or county where they have mental health services that have urgent call lines, you can also call those lines and they can send out mental health professionals to help de-escalate the situation. If you have someone, oftentimes a big one, Michael, is depression. Someone's really sad. They're so sad. They can't get up and brush their teeth every day. They're not getting out of bed. They're, they're calling in to work every day. They're in a rut. They cannot get out of it. They may be having those sad suicidal thoughts, but maybe they're not physically going after anyone. So you may not know, you know, that person may be someone that you do take into the emergency department to be evaluated or you contact their mental health provider um, and let them know what's going on to see what level of help is needed. The important part is to get that initial assessment to see how they're doing, if anything can help if there's any risk there so that they can get the care that they need. So 911, mental health hotlines in your area, um, and then also just going right into your local emergency department as well. There are trained professionals there to help get you where you need to go after the initial assessment. I appreciate you walking us through that as well, um, Cherie. There are a lot of different situations that might necessitate a different approach. So you mentioned getting your loved one yourself to the emergency room as an option. But if you can't do that, some of those other resources are available. Really appreciate it. I'm wondering, you know, I, we don't often get, you're a former psychiatric nurse. So I'm thinking you can maybe here kind of take us behind the front lines and help us see. Uh, the, the question, I guess, is what is inpatient mental health treatment like? What what does it look like? What kind of activities are you doing? What what does it look like? Right. So um, inpatient focuses on, as I mentioned, balancing the individual out, right? So um, there's a participation of a, a psychiatrist to make sure that if you're taking medications, what you need to take and adjusting that to a level that's therapeutic, um, balancing out those imbalances in your brain that's causing the symptoms. There's a physical doctor involved to make sure if you come in and you also have some other health issues going on, whether it be high blood pressure, diabetes, appetite issues, whatever the case may be, we also make sure we address those things as well. So your chemical imbalance in the brain, your physical things that you may need, you get meals, a place to sleep. Oftentimes there are shared rooms with other persons that are there um, inpatient. There's uh, activities, group activities. There are um, therapy groups, individual therapy, um, medical treatment. So it's designed to meet all of your needs and also have enrichment um, to help get you to a better place with the goal of being able to independently sustain outside of that inpatient um, arena. So all kinds of stuff. I've... Um, I mean, we had dances and we would have play therapy with animals coming in and um, people coming in to play the guitar and, and or do art projects. So some of those things, I played a little game of one-on-one -on -one 
um, with one of the residents at an inpatient uh, facility before. We play a little basketball during the break time. There's an outdoor area. So all the things that you and I do, it's a normal space for people to just grow and get to a better place mentally so that they can function independently um, at home. Or sometimes people transition from inpatient to a residential and then they transition from the residential to on their own. So depending on what the need is. And we're going to be talking, as I said, we've got a whole separate uh, video that that explores residential treatment facilities, Cherie. So we'll encourage our listeners and viewers to go to brotherbewell.com and check that one out if you'd be interested. I have to say, Cherie, what you just talked us through, I'm sure is alleviating some of the fear and apprehension that some of our viewers and listeners have maybe had coming into this video because the environment you just described as I thought about loved ones that may or may need that that level of service it kind of puts me at ease listening you said it's just like our regular lives they do the things they play a little basketball their games or there's um, all kinds of activities that that help I think normalize it while the the therapy the therapeutic stuff is going on so I really appreciate you walking us through that I will say, Michael, as well, that um, another really important part is staying involved in your loved one's life. If it is a loved one that's in an inpatient facility, making sure that you're taking advantage of those visits. Um, Though the environment is set up to try to provide all the things that a person may need, nothing replaces the love and connection you have with friends and family. So I strongly suggest keeping that commitment to your loved one and and visiting and actively participating in their care so that they know what's um, that you're there for them. And that helps with healing as well. Really important point. I'm glad you, you shared it and thought of it because I hadn't going into this conversation. Thanks a lot, Cherie, for that. I'm wondering if there is a downside to inpatient mental health care treatment. And if if so, what those downsides might be. Well, Michael, people don't want to be there. Like, you know, one wants to be forced to be where they want to be. Um, also, while you're experiencing your symptoms from your mental illness, so are those other uh, patients or residents, as we would uh, call them residents, that would uh, experience those symptoms as well. So you may be having a bad day and your roommate may be having a bad day or you witness other people's symptomology where they may be talking to themselves or um, unfortunately, violently acting out against um, other, could be staff, could be other um, residents or patients that are in the inpatient facility. So it is an environment where everyone's kind of emotionally raw and working through their issues. So for some people, that's scary, especially if you've never been in an environment uh, of that sort. So um, that does come into play, as I mentioned, Every facility, all the healthcare providers are trained to work in the environment and help make it safe and therapeutic for everyone. But there are unknown variables. So it is quite the experience. But the goal is, as I mentioned, to help get you it, get you the tools so that you can move along. It is the best we can do to make some sort of normalcy in an abnormal situation. In a normal day, you wouldn't be forced to live with strangers and have several people kind of telling you what to do all day. So that that is still there. And if you or I were to think of that today, of sound mind in this moment, we, we probably wouldn't want that even if it was being done for our good. So um, it is a stressful time on your loved one and it's important to be there for them because they are dealing with that um, component of it, especially the involuntary 
um, admittance to those inpatient programs, right? Um, when you have that choice removed, that's difficult to deal with. Yeah, I, and again, hadn't thought of that in that way, Cherie. So really appreciate that. We've touched on outpatient mental health care a little and on residential treatment. And as I said before, we've got whole videos on those topics on brotherbewell.com. But for the sake of this conversation, can you briefly summarize what happens immediately after a patient leaves an inpatient facility? Right. So after you leave an inpatient facility, depending on your symptoms at the time and your plan of care, your plan of care is worked on from the moment you're admitted to the moment you're discharged. They're always looking at what's the next step. Um, it could be um, you, you were there for a specific amount of time, you finished a program and you were discharged home to your family. Um, you may be discharged um, to a, a residential facility, something that's still involuntary and you have to stay there, but maybe you stay at a, resi a residential home for a certain amount of time and if you're successful there, then you're released to be on your own. So depending on the situation and your needs, um, the discharge is still, everyone's still very mindful. What tends to happen after inpatient stays that are involuntary is usually the court or a person has conservatorship, um, essentially like your guardian over your person and your medical decisions and possibly your financial decisions. So to get from under that type of conservatorship or uh, guardianship, the individual has to prove that they can do all those regular activities of daily living and do those things on their own. So depending on the situation, that has to be proven. So it may be as easy as being discharged home um, or proving that you can successfully sustain and stay on a program. Um, and then that's changed. So uh, there is a legal component to involuntary inpatient mental health care um, that really dictates kind of your discharge disposition, where you will go and what that looks like. Really, really appreciate sharing that information, Sheree. And before I let you go, I've got to tell you, you and I met as colleagues. I, I could imagine your patients are really, really lucky. Your level of knowledge and the care in which you even communicate some of these issues would put me at ease. And I know that you put a lot of people at ease every day. So thanks for what you do. Oh, thank you, Michael. I'm very honored and, bl and blessed to help others. Um, it's what I get up to do every day. So I'm honored to be of service to people. We are honored to have you with us, Cherie Kreiner, registered nurse, former psychiatric nurse, and vice president of the Capital City Black Nurses Association. Thank you, ma'am, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. I'd like to give you a quick phone number. We touched a little bit, Cherie and I, on suicide a few minutes ago. If you or a loved one is thinking about anything related to suicide, there's a National Suicide Prevention Lifeline that I'd like you to have. It's one 800 273 8255. Call 1-800-273-8255. You can call that number any time of the day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Call it. Don't hesitate. There's help there for you if you're thinking about uh, suicide. I'd also like to thank our sponsor for this and all of our uh, conversations in our Parents and Caregiver Series, Blue Shield of California, and specifically their Blue Sky Initiative. That initiative boosts access to mental health support. You can learn all about their fantastic program at bluesky.blueshieldca.com. That's bluesky.blueshieldca.com. Another quick website, brotherbewell.com. I mentioned it before, that's ours. Videos just like this one, audio podcasts, print pieces, incredible stories of strength and resilience, all designed to help 
boys and men of color, 13 and up, uh, Be Well, frankly. That's where the name of our organization comes from, Brother Be Well. Check that all out at brotherbewell.com. My name, Michael P. Coleman. I'm content director for Brother Be Well. And it's a great honor reminded to do that for you. I'd like to ask you to do two quick things for me. Take great care of yourself and take great care of somebody else. Until next time, bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Brother Be Well podcast. Join the BBW membership at brotherbewell.com so we can learn to heal trauma together. Thanks also to Blue Shield of California's Blue Sky Initiative for sponsoring this podcast and supporting parents and caregivers in need. I'm Leon Guidry, and that's all for now.